Um, I'm Nita Mendelssohn, I'm a lecturer in English and American Literature here um, at Oxford, and it is my pleasure to introduce the next panel, um, which is on the histories, narratives, and legacies of transatlantic slavery. Um, our first speaker is Fanula Sweeney. Um, Fanula comes to us um, from the University of Liber Liverpool, where she's a lecturer um, whose expertise lies in the fields of 19th and 20th century literature. Um, She's had a number of grants, but the, the current one um, is on um, Afro-Modernist London, Performance, Image, and the Black Press Between the Wars. Um, and she also has a number of distinguished publications, including, in 2007, Frederick Douglass and the Atlantic World. Um, without further ado, please join me in welcoming Fidula Sweeney. Thank you very much, and my sincere thanks to Celeste, Ben, and Hannah for organizing this, this wonderful meeting. Um, I'm going to start with uh, a, a reference to Derrida, which I'll then just park. So just to throw it out there. Uh, it's, it's all stuff you'd be more than familiar with. Um, and I'd like to reference his um, position that the archive is in fact impossible to close, that it is impossible to put a full stop to history but that there is always the possibility available of interpreting or reinterpreting the archive, of making the past useful to the present, um, and signifying a range of possible futures as yet incompletely imagined. Okay. Um, let's park that. Um, what I have up here are sort of a range of quotations from Elaine Locke and uh, Frederick Douglass, which I'll leave you to, to read yourself. But Elaine Locke's uh, 1924 exposition of the significance of African art as an influence on the 20th century revolution in the plastic arts develops a related future-oriented narrative that recognizes the essential historicity, the quintessential modernity of black art practice. The quote, new and more universal aesthetic inflecting the formal radicalism of the period is not for Locke one grounded in a rejection of jaded aesthetic forms incompatible with the unprecedented upheavals characterizing the human experience of the 20th century, in favor of the discovery of the primitive artifact as a rejuvenating force. Rather, it involves a re-evaluation of those objects of Western containment, the dumb, dusty trophies he references, populating the restrained and constrained spaces of the Western cultural archive. Freed from the centralized authority of the museum, uh, the ethnographic space of their cultural estrangement, um, the, aesthetic, the aesthetic alienation, uh, sorry, I beg your pardon. Um, freed from the centralized authority of the museum, the ethnographic space of their cultural estrangement and aesthetic alienation, they become art objects intrinsically interesting and fine, necessarily confronting artist and viewer with new ethical and political responsibilities of archival interpretation of and already um, In a diasporic context in which mastery of the primitive human artifact as a political subject continued to be start starkly illustrated in racial violence in European colonies and across the United States, the focus of this focus on recognitive processes facilitated by the interdiasporic viewing points of the 20th century, their newly familiarized unhomely presence in the spaces of cultural authority, 
uh, simultaneously displaces Western notions of authorship as the engine of the creative act. For if conventional notions of, of acts of artistry are structured around a subject-object relation or an act of will that remains intact during the process of making and is confirmed on its completion, Locke suggests the existence of a contrapuntal Africanist aesthetic that involves the artifactual presence of artistic subjectivity within the art object itself. This encryption of the artist in the work of art disassembles this subject-object maker-made relation, reconfiguring artistry not as an act of mastery, but one of, we might say, a strategic subjection of self-objectification. It marks a transfer of power and a migration of meaning that blurs the distinction between artist and art object in ways subsequently inflecting the acts of spectatorship the artwork is produced to encounter. And concurrently, the discovery of art within the archive destabilizes the historical narrative underpinning the display of ethnographic objects in the museum space. Recognition of the aesthetic significance of the primitive artifact, mastery of which had become a European and Anglo-American cultural event, is simultaneously a disclosure of the failure of Western spectatorship and of a misguided drive to accumulation, <coughs> objectification, and display. As evidentiary markers of untold tales, mimetic narratives of colonial violence and transatlantic slavery, radical documentaries of dislocation, historical alienation, and cultural disorientation, therefore, these artifacts testify to the possibility of acts of reading nuanced by an understanding of the ubiquitous violence and historical cuts that accompanied the creation of the archival resource in the first instance. In the African-American context, Locke's comments also suggest one of the complex ways in which the archive articulates and incorporates its human reference, raising fundamental questions concerning the relationship between the artist, the act of artistry, and the art object, or the conjoined difficulties um, of what I'm going to call the African-American as a subject of representation and the African-American body as an artifact of slavery. Eighty years previously, in 1854, Frederick Douglass noted the archival problematic uh, slavery posed to the black artist in the opening to his novella, The Heroic Slave, an act of memory producing a liter literary record of the heroic exploits of Madison Washington, uh, called by Douglas, one of the truest, manliest, and bravest of Virginia's children, who self-emancipated, detorialized, and disappeared from view, lives now only in what Douglas called the chattel records of his native state. Suggesting that Washington would in future command the pen of genius to set his merits forth, Douglas's insight links the artifactual confinement of the African-American in or as chattel record to the challenge faced by the artist as archivist in accessing and generating cultural docu documents explicating the link between artistic and, and political mastery in ways that transformed, memorialized, mourned, and regenerated the cultural artifact as a work of art. I would like to, to draw on the suggestive force of Douglas and Locke's identification of an uncatalogued archive of cultural documents, chattel <coughs> records, things of beauty, and objects of resistance as a means of exploring some of the ways in which black artists have accessed and added to the resources of national and transnational repositories in acts of artistry which repeatedly point to the performative potential and regenerative processes of the visual archive. 
So some questions. What are the visual politics of access, reproduction, and performance of this chattel record? What do artists as archivists draw from and return to national and transnational repositories? In particular, given the historical legal link between chattel status and black motherhood, how is the significance of the female body as, uh, in many ways, a designated genealogical repository and therefore needfully the most politically resistant um, of subjects uh, articulated? How does the visual representation of African, of African American women as subjects, as objects, as artifacts, <coughs> cultural flames, frames in which the intra-diasporic archive takes shape and enter into dialogue with other archives and differently mobilized artistic frameworks. Okay, um, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, Elzir Kortor's Southern Gate, uh, a painting of 1946. Uh, painted in the immediate post-war period, the painting provides an early in instance of Quartor's emphatic turn in the mid-1940s to a focus on the black female form. Because he is one of the first uh, American artists to do so, Quartor's early paintings of this subject mark an important aesthetic moment, namely that which sees the appearance of the black female nude on the landscape of American art, and a move away from the performances of social, historical, political subjectivity, or what we might describe as na naked, often deliberately subversive exoticism that both preceded and were coterminous with it. In Southern Gate, the black female nude materializes as a newly wrought art object on the landscape of American art, although the preceding decades had, of course, featured many works featuring the black male nude by black and white artists alike. <coughs> With a female fi figure suggestively positioned in front of the gate of the title, the painting compositionally recalls Frederick Douglass's narrative codification of the primal scene to which he has wit hidden witness, the scourging of the young and beautiful Hester by their white master, as his initiation into slavery, his symbolic passage through, quote, the bloodstained gate, described by Sadia Hartman as, quote, the inaugural moment in the formation of the enslaved. The scene is foreshadowed in the visual archive in William Blake's illustration from Stedman's narrative of the, of the revolted slaves in Suriname. Um, but for Hartman, this terrible spectacle of sexually motivated and legislatively underwritten racial violence dramatizes the origin of the subject and demonstrates that to be a slave is to be under the brutal authority of another. In other words, for Douglas, and subsequently for all enslaved persons for whom this scene is extrapolated as an originary narrative, subjectivity and subjection are inevitably and inextricably bound together at the moment of their co-emergence. They are equally bound to a hereditary identity conferred by virtue of the legal status of enslaved motherhood, um, uh, a status only possible to, to impose on black mothers. Um, so to return to Hartman's origin, uh, Hartman here, um, the originary, originary narrative of subjectivity, uh, as she reads it, confirms the visual context of the black female body as one of encrypted, readable, uh, and possibly heritable subjectivity and subjective, subjection combined. And arguably as a result of the same legal framework, the black female body in itself constitutes a particular and inerasable form of genealogical, historical, political archive, 
one that, as Gabriella Foreman has recently pointed out, repeatedly chooses to make its blackness visible. Okay. In a theoretical spur derived from Hartman's uh, insights, her uh, senior piece, Fred Moulton describes the radical aesthetic of the black tradition as a history of blackness that is testament to the fact that objects can and do resist. Uh, Moulton's insight spe refers specifically to the resistant nature of the sound object, the non-musical, non-linguistic articulation that is Hester's scream, which he argues allows the originary narrative equally to constitute what he calls a scene of objection, one simultaneously marked by both the performance of the object and the performance of humanity. And I'd like to suggest the, the translatability of this formulation of the radical aesthetics of black performance um, into, the individual, into the visual domain, and possibly that the coexistence of archival visual, visualizations, such as Blake's, of related acts of public brutality destined to circulate among, be owned by and looked at by audiences very different to those subjected in and to the scene of the original beatings and of the self-objectification of individuals who might otherwise pass for white, may allow for a reading of Corsair's nude and the Gothicized landscape she inhabits as a contemporary moment of, of aesthetic objection, as a scene in which the body performs the emancipation of the artifact and the process of creating the art object. So overtly staged within the economy of hypervisibility, her back to the iron gate with its crumbling portico swathed in a cloth whose red, white, and blue recalls the celebratory banners of abolition and union victory, as well as the bloody rag of Blake's earlier illustration. The female figure in this painting faces away from, rather than into, a past whose neoclassical architectural vestiges confirm an investment in civilizational models whose political failures and history of internecine conflict find expression in the ruined facade, the southern architecture of white memory. The figure in the painting has been read as a symbolic representation of abandonment, of the tragedy of diaspora, the devastating consequences of the shift to the urban north from the rural south that characterized the experience of the great migration for many African Americans. As a contemporary artifact of southern history, the female figure captures the significance of the postbellum century with iconic clarity. Yet in the immediate aftermath of a war against genocide and totalitarianism in Europe, in which the US emerged as liberator as well as victor, the Gothic grammar of the painting serves to underline, through territorial contextualization, the strangeness of that victory as another one of the many possible overdeterminations that attend it. So we have the plantation, the camp, the cemetery, the gate of no return, all signified in here. In addition to its provocative symbolism, however, Compositionally, the piece tilts towards an overt contemplation of form. The scale of the figure recalls the heroic representations of labor that characterized the social realism of the previous decade, during which Corsor, employed in the federal art project, drew genre scenes at the south side of Chicago that emphasized the lives of the poor and working classes in visual critiques of the political apparatus since that kept extant social structures in place. In this painting, however, the heroic scale in conjunction with the elongation of the figure, the modeling of the roundness of the torso and limbs, emphasizes, emphasizing solidity and volume, aligned the work less with the conventions of social realism 
than with those of West African sculptural forms. And although the grammar of the painting gestures primarily towards the formal rather than the social, Corsair was also, in fact, painting from life. His work in this period had taken him on an exploratory journey across the south to the sea islands off the coast of Georgia and the Carolinas, where he encountered Gullah Creole culture, unusual in North America in retaining distinctive African cultural traits, despite the repressive impositions of slaveholding society. Drawn from life and modeled in paint, Corsair's nude figure therefore emerges from a process of intra-diasporic encounter and recognition. She's the product of a fusion of anthropological desire and aesthetic practice activated within diaspora. The, art, the artist's search in the human and cultural archive for forms and subjects providing visual confirmation of an ongoing history of objection and dissent. In this image of the female form, therefore, ethnographic practice and related forms of anthropological display are subject to a radical breakdown by complicated plays on the culturally familiar and the archivally available. Although one of the few available readings of this work describes the female figure as stripped of integrity and reduced to a mere object, the painting's dual reference points in African sculpture, the art object that precedes enslavement, and the African-American body, the artifact of slavery, both carry archival and aesthetic functions in this visual performance of blackness as and at the scene of objection. So moving on to, uh, so this, this isn't a particularly clear image. Um, this work by, uh, is called Seated. It's by contemporary French artist Elizabeth Palumba, uh, and it complicates and expands the artistic claims on the resources of the Transnational Archive, deliberately laying claim to a commonality of ownership in Western art, as well as to uh, the diaspora compository. A deliberate pastiche, or as Columba describes it, a reminiscence of James McNeil Whistler's 1871 work, it sits, sits within Columba's wider project of revisiting key mythological, religious, and allegorical themes in the history of art including, for example, Mary in the Hall, an anticipation of the scene of the Annunciation, the ants, a tableau from the story of Psyche and Cupid, and Phyllis, a portrait of Phyllis Wheatley, imagined just before her premature and lonely death uh, in London at the age of just 31. The frontispiece portrait to Wheatley's poems Religious and Moral by the African-American artist Scipio Moorhead remains a cornerstone in the conjoined archival and aesthetic projects linking what Wheatley herself called, quote, the poets and the painter's fire, to a process of public record making in which the circulation of the printed book and the inclusion of self-authored or authorized images in those books <coughs> generated an internationally networked counter-archive, an unsanctioned resource of chattel records, accessible across the diaspora, while repeatedly playing on tropes of commodification, ownership, objectification. Um, and exchange. Uh, so there's a gesture here also towards a form of archival maternity. Uh, in the execution of Columba's works, as well as in her choice of subject matter, there is an emphasis on technical proficiency and the mastery. Oops. Okay. There is an emphasis on technical proficiency and the mastery of form, with many of the paintings apparently resonating with the compositional concerns and familiar furnishings of the Italian Renaissance Dutch genre painting. Um, okay, so, so she's, she's very interested in um, 
positioning black subjects in unusual spaces and defamiliarizing the kinds of narratives that we might expect to exist around those. Um, okay, to return to the expressive silence and emotional restraint of this piece insists um, on the at least partial unavailability of the subject, subject's embodied experience of an individual and collective history echoed in the paraphernalia of representation furnishing the space in which he now sits. The contours of that history take shape in the uncharted spaces, temporal and geographical, that lie between the seated woman and the other artworks embedded in the piece. Uh, and just, you can just note that her immediate point of reference is with Whistler's mother here. And this painting is actually about tonal harmony. It's not about, it's not a portrait, it's not about the subject itself. Okay. So in terms of configuring history, that history takes shape in those uncharted spaces, those temporal and geographical spaces that lie between the seated woman and the other artworks embedded in the piece. The larger canvas on the viewing right reiterates the tropical idiom as a means of providing a window onto colonial space. Its Caribbean resonances gesture at once to the geographical reach of enslavement, to the unknowability of the domestic in intimacies of those in slavery, the cabin uh, alleg allegorizing the ongoing exteriorization and representative control to which black figures were subject, and symbol too of past failures to represent. The painting on the viewing left, Benoit's Portrait d'une Négresse, um, is another further complication. Marcus Wood has pointed to the significance of this portrait by one of the few women artists, artists of the period, exploring its revolutionary content and commentary on the different, differently constituted but conjoined realities of class and race oppression, as often unrepresented elements of the subaltern substrata providing radical impetus to French and Haitian revolutions. Um, almost exceptionally, this painting presents the Afro-European or Afro-American as a self-emancipating subject. Perhaps as exceptionally, it ties to an aesthetic emphasis on the female body, the possibility of an emancipated future to the genealogical authority of black motherhood as a means of producing emancipated subjects and an emancipatory aesthetic inscribed in the collective body through subsequent generations. Columba's late 20th century recall of Benoit's 18, painting of 1800 as an aesthetic act of radical recognition is in and of itself an act of producing and reproducing the archive, of overtly accessing the artifactual evidence and in doing so recovering the memory object of the original act of emancipation <coughs> and productive moment of artifactual and aesthetic regeneration. The work also, however, performs a series of referential recalls less immediately obvious because of their originary artifactual tracings in the chapel record. One series of prefigurations we might read here includes, for example, uh, Archibald Motley's uh, Mending Socks, another wildly popular work idolizing the apparently benign uh, image of the grand maternal rather than the maternal. Um, but this figure is someone who may actually be surrounded by, uh, in her domestic landscape, by items of New Orleans uh, hoodoo. Uh, and also um, by Truth's image, radical image of anti-literacy and self-articulation um, as part of a visual archive in which, again, the apparently benign mechanism of domestic work provides a surreptitious performance of, in this case, the Anansi, the spider trick trickster, accompanied by her bag of shadows. You can see her uh, 
doing something with her wool there, and her bag of shadows is out of, of sight. Uh, something about which uh, Celeste Marie has written and continues to write so compellingly. There are innumerable other examples of the ways in which the chattel record hides in plain sight, um, of archival artistry that constantly performs, repeats, and rewrites records whose multiple originary moments lie in earlier representations of enslaved or formerly enslaved women. Elizabeth Catlett's lineup of the series, I Am the Negro Woman, integrates personal witness in the form of fragments of handwritten commentary on the print image in ways that pay homage formally. Uh, the process of producing the line of cut image reflects both those of typesetting and lithographic printing and engraving that were uh, the engine of the slave narrative, and, other and otherwise to its archival antecedents, allowing the stark lines and textures of graphic media to convey politically charged critiques of the heroic histories and grim realities of life for African-American women. So here we have both Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman uh, appearing rehistoricizing the contemporary moment of the act of artistry uh, with the epitaphs um, Sojourner Truth fought for women as well as for the Negro and Harriet Tubman helped hundreds uh, to freedom. Um, the less immediately historically recognizable in other folks' houses invokes uh, again the same visual archive of the frontispiece uh, engraving um, in, in the visual art archive that are sometimes neglected perhaps because of their too explicit, too subversive presence as subalterns for whom others speak um, with particular precision and subtlety. Uh, so this is uh, Eleanor Eldridge's 1938 frontispiece from her narrative. Uh, and this is uh, Hazlitt's In Other Folks' Homes. Quite, quite a poignant um, recall of the original. Archibald Motley's portrait of matrilineal survival in the 1920s, too, echoes those images of self-mastery that provide the cumulative mainstay of 19th century assemblages of the public record and chattel archive through the medium of the photographic standard, clarifying the need, especially in the aftermath of displacement, to make Southern history visible. While one of Lavinia Himmett's major works, Naming the Money, which Alan referenced earlier, um, transfers the catalogue complexity of artifactual lives into the gallery space, pointing implicitly and explicitly to the generative and regenerative capacity possible through familiar defamiliarizations of aspects of the human archive in one of the many creative acts of repetition we call difference that gives us a model of diaspora that is not only a series of movements through space, um, but thrives on ongoing responses to and re reach interpretations of the performance of archival artistry. Thank you.